This is a Timmet podcast. This podcast is part of the series On the Marge. The title of this episode is Unlimited Power. Unlimited Power. As I stood on the street corner waiting for Max, I pondered the practical problems associated with the reportedly thin line between genius and insanity. How did you tell who was on which side of the line, especially in Yukon? Or did it even matter? I could see Max coming a block away, his ponytail bouncing behind him under his helmet. Over his tattered clothes, he was wearing his orange reflective high-vis safety vest, festooned with blinking battery-powered lights. His headlamp was turned off, however, perhaps in deference to the bright March afternoon sunlight. Hiking poles are not an unusual sight around Whitehorse, but I had never before seen them in full use on Main Street. At every quick stride, Max thrust out a pole, giving the impression of a mechanical threshing machine, clearing a swath through the wary early tourists and the oblivious local residents. As he drew nearer, I could hear the snick, snick, snick of his crampons on the sidewalk. I knew the pack on his back contained extra clothes to cater to every possible weather condition. It probably also held some emergency food, a first aid kit, and a GPS unit with extra batteries. Oh yes, he had time for coffee, the unspoken assumption being that I would pay. But no, we couldn't go to a chain coffee shop, and yes, the baked cafe would be okay. As we made our way down Main Street to our destination, I asked Max why he was wearing crampons. So I don't slip on the ice, he said as if it were obvious. There certainly wasn't any ice on the downtown sidewalks, and there hadn't been any ice for a while. But Max walked everywhere, so maybe there was ice on some of the trails he frequented. But have you ever slipped, or even come close to slipping? I asked. (laughs) Well, of course not, he replied with excessive clarity, as if I were a simple child. I don't slip because I wear crampons. Baked was fairly crowded, and all the tables out on the sunny, if cool, sidewalk were full. We did find a table inside, and I put my coat on the chair to reserve our place while we went up to the counter to order. Max placed his backpack on the other chair, but then changed his mind and took it with him. Hmm, somebody might steal it, he mumbled in response to my inquisitive glance. I looked around. There were several tables of young couples holding hands, and whispering significant declarations to each other. There was a mother telling a story to three children at the table by the window. There were at least three people reading real books. Two grizzled old-timers in well-worn clothes were exchanging stories of times long past. Two European tourists were standing uncertainly near the counter, staring hesitantly at the food display and trying to match items to the menu board above. Two young ladies, each with their own computer, were talking in an animated fashion, jabbing their fingers at each other's screens, perhaps collaborating on a project. And around the periphery were the usual assortment of lone laptoppers checking their email or updating their Facebook statuses. The free wireless internet at the baked was quite popular. I waved my arm around the cafe. So which one of these would steal your backpack, I asked. That's just it, replied Max. You never know until it's too late. We returned to the table with our coffee. Hey, said Max, did you know there's a new Colorful 5% book out? Oh, did you get a copy? A pain frowned across Max's face. I'd forgotten that he never bought anything that wasn't a strict necessity. No, but I thumbed through it in the bookstore, he replied. This one has the story of Alexander in it. 
Alexander was a large man who lived with his small dogs in a tiny cabin just outside of town and rode his bicycle everywhere, often with dogs in a backpack. He spent most of his time at the library writing letters to local newspapers about dogs and seemed to be on a first-name basis with all the politicians. Jim Robb's profiles of colorful Yukoners appeared in the paper from time to time and had been published in book form. The previous volumes had been quite popular. I made a mental note to pick up a copy of the new book for our bed and breakfast guests to enjoy. Do you think that being declared one of the colorful 5% is an honor or an embarrassment, I asked. And how does anyone know who's in the 5% at the edge of normality anyway? What if you're just 1% off? Well, said Max, he had briefly been a math teacher, I had always imagined the spectrum of normalcy as a bell curve, with normal people being in the middle and the colorful people being in the 2.5% on each extreme. But what's normal, I asked. I mean, is normal in Yukon the same as normal in downtown Toronto? Probably not, but I don't know how to define it. Actually, I considered Max to be a prime candidate for the colorful 5%. Like many Yukon residents, he had come for one summer and never left. He had worked in every department of the Yukon government, moving quickly and easily from job to job. At first, I assumed this versatility was a positive reflection on his skill as a civil servant, but I soon learned it was quite the opposite. Co-workers complained about him, and supervisors shuffled him out to the next department as soon as they could. He never stayed in one place for more than three or six months. Finally, there was no place left for him to be shuffled to, and he was out. He owned a small house in the Porter Creek subdivision of Whitehorse, not far from our Walnut Crescent bed and breakfast. Partly as an environmental statement, but mostly from economic necessity, he owned no car and walked everywhere. It was not uncommon to see him trudging up Mountain View Drive or along the Alaska Highway, where his reflective vest and flashing lights were probably a very good idea. After the end of his career with the Yukon government, Mac's life switched to the pursuit of the ultimate job, which for him meant employment at the City of Whitehorse. When not walking, he spent his time searching through job ads, writing covering letters, talking to city workers, and attending social events to meet someone who might someday be in a position to hire him. To some extent, that worked to his disadvantage. Everyone eventually knew everyone else in the small city of Whitehorse, or at least knew someone who knew everyone else. Max's reputation preceded him, and he quickly ran out of new impressions to make. Somehow, Max managed to pay his living expenses by working on short-term minimum wage contracts for non-profit agencies. He knew something about everything, and never hesitated to share that information with everyone, under the impression he was contributing valuable insight. In fact, he had the knack of rubbing people the wrong way, and they tended to ignore what he had to say, even when it was truly valuable. I felt sorry for Max and didn't begrudge him the coffee I bought him from time to time. I found him a fascinating character and promised myself that I would write him into a best-selling novel someday. Truthfully, having him as a friend was difficult, but I reasoned it was good for my karma. I don't think Max had many other friends. Maybe he didn't have any other friends at all. As we sipped our coffee, Max looked cautiously around the room, almost as if he were checking to see if anybody was listening. After a second, and then a third glance, he said, Okay, Chuck, here's a theoretical topic for discussion. It's strictly hypothetical. You're an engineer, so you'll understand. Go ahead, I said. I'm listening. Max hesitated and asked, Do you know who Nikola Tesla was? It's because of him that we use alternating current. If Thomas Edison had had his way, we'd all be using DC. 
I nodded. Yes, I knew about Tesla. About a hundred years ago, he had done some wonderful experiments involving wireless transmission of electricity, remote control, and radio waves. Max continued. Not many people know about Tesla's electric car. Uh, no, no, nothing to do with the Tesla cars today. But in 1930, Nikola Tesla replaced the gasoline engine in a Pierce Aero luxury sedan with an electric motor. The power for this motor came from a black box full of electronic circuitry. It also had two antennas. Tesla claimed that the black box was a receiver for energy from the atmosphere. According to reports from Tesla's nephew, the car operated for more than a week and never needed refueling. Tesla took the black box out of the car and destroyed it, and any record of how it worked has been lost. Huh, I'd never heard about that part of Tesla's work, I said. But imagine what would happen today if someone rediscovered the secret of Tesla's power-generating black box, a box that could make an unlimited amount of electricity without requiring any fuel. What do you think would happen? Well, it sure would be handy for all those people with cabins off the grid, I replied. Instead of hauling fuel for generators and chopping wood for heat, they could just hook up a Tesla box and play video games in comfort. My mood wasn't overly serious. Oh, come on, said Max impatiently. It's a lot bigger than that. Imagine what it would be like if every house in Whitehorse had one of Tesla's devices to provide all the power for light and heat that anyone required. Decentralized power generation. So there'd be no longer any need for the power dam or the backup LNG generators or for the power lines connecting everything. That would mean no need for hauling heating oil and propane up from outside. And then, if every car and truck were electrically powered with one of Tesla's own devices in it, if every industry had one of Tesla's devices, it would mean, mean the end of the age of oil and usher in a new green era of prosperity. But of course, added Max, looking around suspiciously, that's only hypothetical, because the secret of Tesla's device has been lost. This all sounds wonderful, but what's the point of all this? Anyway, I asked. Well, continue the exercise a bit further, demanded Max, almost as if he hadn't heard me. Widespread use of the inexpensive Tesla device would change the world. It would change the fortunes of the oil companies. Their markets would quickly disappear. It would change the economy of every country because they're all based on energy. No longer would the third world countries be held back by the ransom they pay to the first world for oil. And that means the whole balance of power in the world would change. Imagine if, I don't know, Bangladesh and Mali, for example, suddenly had enough free energy to develop their countries. And the United States and China no longer had the corner on everything. Hmm, that doesn't sound like it would necessarily be a bad thing in the long run, I said. You're right. It would be a good thing in the long run, observed Max. But the key is looking at the situation strategically. In the short term, the Tesla device would be very much against the interests of oil companies, many big businesses, and lots of powerful governments. Do you think they would just sit by and let the Tesla device proliferate freely? In fact, there are some indications that people have rediscovered the secret of the Tesla device, or invented essentially the same thing based on some other principle. And what happened to them? Why didn't Tesla put his original device into production? Well, I give up. What happened? Max looked at me with his speaking-to-simple-child expression again, but this time with a strange glint in his eye. It's because the big companies and the governments put a stop to it, all to preserve the world as they wanted it. They either bought out the inventors or killed them off. You can read about it on the internet. Oh, I mean, like, like the guy who invented the motor, or was it a carburetor? They could get 500 miles per gallon. Oil companies bought the patent and buried it so they couldn't sell more oil. That kind of thing, I asked. Oh, yes, yes, said Max impatiently, but this is much bigger than just a better gas engine. This affects everyone in the whole world and has an impact on the economy, balance of power, and environment everywhere. 
or at least it would if this wasn't a purely a hypothetical discussion. He looked around to see if anyone was listening. Nobody was. We finished our coffee with a discussion of less earth-shaking matters and walked out onto the sunny street. As I prepared to leave Max, he suddenly touched my sleeve and said, Come with me for a minute, down by the river. I have something I want to tell you. Humoring him, I followed him down around the old White Pass and Yukon Railway Station, across a narrow-gauge track the tourist trolley sometimes used in the summer, and we sat on the upstream corner of the bench on the wharf. We watched the clear green water of the Yukon River flow by, still edged by the late March ice. What is it? I asked. Max looked around and stood up and looked around again. It's okay, he said. There's nobody around. Promise you won't tell anybody what I tell you today. Max always had been a bit paranoid. He was very afraid of having his house broken into. He was very afraid of wolves, coyotes, and foxes. He was very afraid of getting lost in the woods, especially in the dark, or being lost in fog. Once after a Christmas party, he had stayed the night at our house, but only after testing all the smoke detectors and wedging a chair under the door handle of his room. I had never seen him act the way he was now. I've discovered the secret of the Tesla device, he whispered. Really? I said, my incredulity probably quite obvious. Yes, it really wasn't all that hard. Tesla's nephew reported that Tesla had spoken about receiving energy from the atmosphere. His device had two antennas, so it must have been like a radio receiver. I calculated the wavelength from the size of the antennas his nephew described. The only other clue was a list of materials, which was really quite simple. The components were off-the-shelf vacuum tubes, resistors, and wires. Max was speaking quickly now. I wonder why the device required two antennas when an ordinary receiving device can get by with one. I concluded that Tesla's device contained two separate circuits, each one receiving a separate half of some waveform in the atmosphere. You know, like positive and negative. Anyway, I tried several different configurations using modern power transistors instead of vacuum tubes and was quite surprised when it all worked. Let me get this straight, I said. You have reconstructed Tesla's power generation box. You have a device that can generate an unlimited amount of power without requiring any fuel. Well, maybe not unlimited, replied Max. The limit is the size of the wires and the current rating of the transistors. But, but yes, I have a device that runs my whole house. Power transistors are quite expensive. The whole thing costs more than $100. But, but I've been off the grid for a month. But don't tell anybody, not a soul. Don't even hint to anyone what I just told you. I swore I would keep Max a secret, but extracted from him the promise to give me a demonstration of the device. We agreed on Thursday evening. He wouldn't accept a ride. He said he had things to do. I watched him head north on the path along the river, the lights on his reflective vest flashing dimly in the bright sunlight. His crampons made the same snick, snick, snick sound as they had outside the baked cafe. I had only been to Max's house once before. It was a small, old building centered on one of the historically large lots in Porter Creek. Over the years, Max had double-walled the house to make it more energy efficient using materials he had scrounged from various building projects. The windows were mismatched, and the siding was of three colors, even if the roof was only of two. I rang the doorbell, and when that got no reaction, I pounded firmly on the front door. Max's face appeared at the window, and he appeared to be checking if I was alone. Finally, he started unlocking the door, which took some time given the number of locks it carried. It looked like something from a movie about a New York apartment with seven locks of various kinds up and down the door. Do you think you have enough door locks, I said, in jest, as Max let me in. 
Max chewed his lip nervously. Mm. Do you think I need more, he asked. There's room for two more. <laughs> no, actually, I think you're fine, I said, regretting my attempt at humor. So let's see this magic device. It was somewhat disappointing. Because Max had always been worried about electrical blackouts, he had had his house wired for an auxiliary generator. Yes, there was a steel ammunition box with two short antennas coming out of it, with two more connections wired to where the generator normally was. Nothing moved. There was no flashing lights or even any noise. That's it? I asked. Well, what did you expect? Asked Max, somewhat defensively. But look, it's, it's running the whole house. Lights, electric heaters, a stove. I tested it by running every light I had, plus all the baseboard heaters. I suppose it might have been running the whole house, but that was hard to confirm. The switch to change from normal electrical power to the generator was in the generator position, but everything else looked remarkably normal. I accepted Max's offer of tea, and we spoke of what Max's next step should be with the Tesla device. Max understood that the device had considerable commercial potential, and that he stood to become quite rich, something that he looked forward to so he could stop his life of writing covering letters for his increasingly outdated resume. However, he thought that commercializing it would be extremely difficult if he did it so that the design could be used by everyone everywhere, without the risk of being buried by the government or some big company. I didn't really know what to advise him to do. When I left, he was mulling over the idea of simply publishing the design on the internet so that it could be freely copied and produced by anyone. The next day was Friday, and l'Association Franco-Yucanaise was having a fundraising supper for the food bank. I went along to do my bit, and ended up sitting with Yukon's Member of Parliament, the photographer from one of the newspapers, and Corporal Chris Chance from the RCMP, all of whom I knew quite well. We had no sooner tucked into our tortiere when Corporal Chance's cell phone went off. He listened for a bit, asked a few questions, and then hung up. He turned to me. You're a friend of Max, right? Well, he doesn't have any friends, but yeah, I guess I'm one of the few, I replied cautiously. What's up? Come with me, ordered Corporal Chance. We pulled on our coats, climbed into the RCMP cruiser out front, and headed north along Mountain View Drive. There were lights flashing in the dip by McIntyre Creek. Two police cars and an ambulance. We pulled over and climbed out, and I followed Corporal Chance down to the edge of the creek. Hit and run, said the RCMP officer, who seemed to be in charge, struck by some vehicle while walking along the road. Corporal Chance pulled me forward to the body on the ground beside the creek, covered with a blanket. He tugged the blanket back. Do you recognize him? he asked me. It was Max, all right. But there's something strange, and it took me a moment to understand what it was. He was walking along the road, alone in the dark, said the officer in charge. Apparently he did that a lot. Didn't have a car, walked everywhere. Not a smart thing to do, wearing black like that. I reached forward and lifted the blanket again. Black pants and black turtleneck. Not really warm enough for a March evening. No reflective vest. No flashing lights. Did he have a headlamp, I asked? Crampons on his feet? A backpack? No headlamp. No crampons here, said an RCMP officer checking. Just running shoes. No backpack, either. I took Corporal Chance aside and told him that something was definitely amiss. Max would never have gone out at night lightly dressed without his vest, lights, and backpack. Can we check his house? I asked without explaining what I was looking for. A bit irregular to take you along to the house, said Corporal Chance, but I won't tell if you won't. Just don't touch anything. Two more RCMP officers followed us in their car. I had warned the officers that Max's house might be difficult to get into, but that was not the case. 
The door opened easily when the corporal turned the doorknob. None of the seven locks were secured. Nothing looked out of place. I went to the rear of the house and checked the generator. It was off, but connected properly, and the house was operating on normal commercial power. There was no sign of an old ammunition box with two antennas anywhere. I knew that Max was much closer to the concertedly colorful extreme than to the numbingly normal center of Yukon society, but it was frightening to think of him as insane. In seeking an explanation of what had happened, it struck me that Max's continued failure to find a job, despite being well-educated and quite willing to work, must have been quite depressing for him. Maybe he wanted to be remembered as someone who had been singularly successful, instead of a character around town who had been residually ridiculous. Perhaps this had driven him to dream up the Tesla generator as a hoax, and then to avoid in-depth scrutiny and preserve the new reputation he had forged, had gotten rid of the box and committed suicide. I kicked myself for not having been more objective about the demonstration that Max had arranged for me at his house. I could have done some measurements with a meter, or just flipped the switch to see if changing from generator power to normal power made any difference. It was even more frightening to think that Max could have been perfectly sane. If he had, in fact, discovered the secret of the Tesla generator, there was no reason for him to commit suicide. Indeed, under such conditions, he had every reason to stay alive. But had some shadowy government agency or mysterious commercial intelligence organization found out about what he had been doing despite his secrecy? Maybe they had come to White Horse, destroyed the box, and silenced Max forever. <laughs> that was something that could happen quite easily in an American spy thriller, but it was not at all plausible in White Horse. Every other scenario I could imagine came down to a variation on one of those two themes. What had really happened to Max? I wasn't sure what to do with my speculation. What was clear to me, however, was that unlimited power can be deadly in any form, for those who have it, or even for those who think they have it. This has been a Timmet podcast in a series called On the Marge. Instrumental intro and exit are courtesy of Kate Weeks. If you would like more of these podcasts, check out the podcast website at timmet.com dot ca slash podcasts that's t-i-m-m-i-t dot ca slash podcasts